0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: Good afternoon, this is Resonance 104 FM, 104.4 FM, sorry. and you're listening to Little Atoms with Richard Sanderson and me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is a show about science, rationalism, humanism and the progressive left. Each show features a guest from the worlds of science, politics and journalism, talking about subjects as diverse as conspiracy theories, cosmology, religion, the new age, human rights and the state of the left. Our guest today is the writer and filmmaker John Ronson. So we'll have a little more music and then Richard will introduce John. (laughs)
2: As Neil was saying, Little Atoms is Resonance FM's science and politics slot, but our guest today is neither a scientist nor a politician, although his recent work, notably in The Men Who Stare at Goats, has brought those two worlds, science and politics, together, albeit at the wilder fringes. He's a writer and a documentary maker whose work has given us some memorable character portraits of people as disparate as Omar Bakri, Ian Paisley and David Icke. He's also, very briefly, the keyboard player for Frank Sidebottom. John Ronson, welcome to Resonance FM. Hi, thank you for having me. You're welcome. And um, I'm going to ask you a first question, which took me ages to uh, write out. <laughs> Is so it about
3: Frank Sidebottom?
1: <laughs>
2: no. we'll save that for later. I've got a few sort of extraneous things I want to ask you. Um, now, there was um, a lot of the people that you write about, um, especially in Then uh, Adventures with Extremists. Uh, they all seem to share sort of paranoid conspiracy theories the new world order and all that and um, in a recent interview I read you refer to an escalating paranoia on both sides particularly since September the 11th and uh, you speak about the extremist and the secular liberal there being a sort of escalating paranoia could you expand on that a little (coughs) bit for me?
3: Well I I noticed that when I was in Vancouver with David Icke um, David Icke was going around the world saying that you know, the, the the global elite, members of the Bilderberg Group and the British Royal Family and so on, are all 12-foot lizards who've adopted human form, you know, child-sacrificing, blood-drinking, paedophile reptiles, um, Chris Christopherson, Boxcar Willie, the Queen Mother, Hillary Clinton, but not Bill Clinton. Um, and I mean, I, I, and I knew about David Icke's lizard theories for a while, but I didn't kind of want to touch them because I thought it was just nuts and there was nothing to say. But then I heard that there were all these secular liberals, members of groups like the Canadian Jewish Congress and the Anti-Defamation League and anti-racist action. Um, you know, people very much from my side of the fence. Yeah, um, I yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was. Yeah, and people who I liked very much on a you know one-on-one basis. But they were all convinced when David Icke said 12-foot blood-drinking lizards, he was using code. And what he really meant was Jews. And David Icke would say, no, no, I really do mean lizards. And they'd say, well, that's code too. <laughs> and there's kind of no winning you know and and i and and that's when i began to notice you know as the extremists were getting crazier yeah. so were our responses towards them and obviously all of this was was pre nine eleven. i mean my, my adventure with david ike was was a few months before september the 11th um but obviously you notice kind of resonances of of that um I hate to use these American phrases, but I can't think of another phrase, that kind of sort of symbiotic relationship between between the people on our side of the fence and the people on their side of the fence, that we kind of need each other. And and it spirals into nuttiness on both sides. And you obviously notice resonances of that in, in the post-911 world, do you not?
2: You do. And mm-hmm. um, do you think that the, if you like, the, the left secular paranoia has grown really with, the rise of, um, well, I mean, yes, the rise of Bush, really. I mean, he's now got a a definite uh, elected majority as opposed to the rather dubious one he had in the first time round.
3: Well, I mean, we've been pushed to the fringes. Um, When I I was writing them, them was a book about really about Clinton's um, essentially secular, rational rational administration and the people who were resorting to conspiracy theories and, you know, paranoid neurotic thought were, were the nationalists, and, and and the racists and, and the people who felt like twigs in the tidal wave of globalisation and you know, the people living up in Idaho um, and so on, you know, they were the nutty people but, you know, now we're the nutty people because, you know, we're the disenfranchised. <laughs> you know, so, so you've got that and the gap between us and them has narrowed hugely, I mean, you know when I was writing them um, I had to point out that conspiracy theory was at the heart of you know, um, terrorism and extremism, and now we're all conspiracy theorists. I mean, you know, it's it's no it's no longer a matter of, um, you know, I wonder whether there'll be conspiracy theories in in the wake of the London bombs. It's like, you know, you get them ten minutes later, and we all believe Indeed, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and I think that's that's a lot to do with, you know, Bush being in power and us feeling like a, an oppressed minority. But it's also to do with, I think, the fact that we feel just a long way away from our leaders, which which we didn't quite so much in in the late 90s. Um, you know, we felt that like Tony Blair was one of us, and we felt Clinton was a good guy. And, you know, now suddenly Tony Blair feels like, you know, a million miles away, and so does George Bush. You, you
1: touched on that a little bit. Originally, when you, when them was published in the UK, you know, it was received as, you know, a gentle description of, of the extremists and, and you know, you humanise them and, you know, character studies, as Richard mentioned earlier. Um, then, of course, bad timing before it can be released in America. 9-11 happened. Some of those extremists rather inconveniently fly jumbo jets into the um, World Trade Centre. Yeah, not
3: good. <laughs> <laughs> great. Not great. I had to bring out a funny book about extremists. So can you talk a little
1: about how... What that culture was like, what it was like to release the book in America
3: at that time, and how it was received. Yeah. Oh, it's fascinating. Well, well, first I didn't think they were going to release it in America, um, and then and then they did. And, and the first thing that happened a couple of weeks after September the 11th, I was invited onto this show called uh, Fresh Air with Terry Gross on National Public Radio, and I said, "You're not going to believe it, Terry Gross wants to interview you." You know, she only interviews, you know, Clinton and you know, Shimon Peres. And I thought, okay. (laughs) And so I went on the show, and her first question to me was, you spent a year with an Islamic fundamentalist, a colleague of Osama bin Laden's, You portrayed him as a harmless buffoon, you were wrong, weren't you? So, obviously, (laughs) in her mind, I'd become this sort of. Yeah, and I'd become (laughs) this kind of, um, you know, the sort of of poster boy for the death of irony. (laughs) uh, So, I I sort of, um, you know, I said that I I thought that my portrait of Oma Bakri was accurate, and I still do. And in fact, Channel 4 re showed Tottenham Arzola. Uh, the film I made about him quite recently, indeed. And what's what was interesting, and I don't want to be too self aggrandizing, but I do think what was interesting is that it was funny then, and it's not funny now, but it doesn't make the film any worse.
2: But there were there did. were some sorry there were some moments in the uh, in the re-showing of it that were quite startling. You know, there, there was the the list of people that he was going to be bringing to the Docklands Arena, yeah. and of course one of them was Osama bin Laden yeah. at least on film or video or something. And it, I remember, I, I'm sure I would have. That would have it didn't have so much effect. I think I was aware of Osama bin Laden, but obviously after a certain date, it was you know he was public enemy number one, and it was quite shocking to see this name just in the middle of a whole list of people.
3: Yeah, and you know most of the film was set at the Finsby Park Mosque, and and you know as as we know, I mean you know there's obviously a lot of problems with the new terror terror legislation about closing down mosques and you know glorifying. You know, all, all of that stuff. But, you know, the Finsbury Park mosque at that time was, was clearly a hotbed of terrorist planning. Um, you know, we know that Zachariah Massawi was there, the 20th hijacker, and Richard Reid, I believe, was, was there. Um, and so it is kind of funny to think that we were bumbling around in a silly way, you know, at that, at that time. Interestingly, nobody, nobody from the police ever called to us to look at the rushes.
1: Do you think... The same about Omar now. I mean, would you still say he was bumbling, or do you think he had, he did have a hand in Richard Reed and things like that? You it's
3: really, it's it's really hard. I can't, I can't come to a conclusion about Omar. I just can't. When I, they wanted me to Channel Four. They wanted me to sort of come up with a conclusion. I just couldn't because part of me thought, you know, actually maybe he was a piece of the jigsaw puzzle. Maybe
2: he's mm. cleverer than we all thought, and he ha- he actually played you quite well. Yeah, it's
3: it's quite possible. You him, um, it's quite not that I think. You know, even if that's true, I don't believe that he would have played me to the extent. You know, that he would have sort of acted like a silly fool in front of me, and then as soon as my back was turned, you know, turned into a into sort of Machiavellian villain. You know, I don't think he would have done that, but I think it's quite possible to act in that silly way towards me, and and act in in the same way towards Richard Reed, um, but with a purpose and with some with some influence. You know, I do think that's possible. I mean, in the end, at the end of the film, I came out with the you know conclusion that. There was kind of nothing beneath Omar, Mm. and and and, you know, it was I can't remember the the phrase that I used, but something like you know it it, it seemed you know kind of inappropriate for the for the government to dazzle us with shows of strength against people like Omar, but I'm not sure you know I think and I don't think anybody's sure, and actually I'm not I don't think the government necessarily were wrong to to chuck Omar out Mm. because you know nobody knows I mean there's no there's no hard intelligence on Omar, and I think they were just being cautious. And I think within, you know, within that, you know, the context of the weeks after the London bombs, it was probably right to be cautious. Um, but I didn't say that at the end of the film. I kind of said that it, it just seemed, you know, Omar's world well just seemed empty, which is which is possibly equally true.
1: You could be thought of as sort of not necessarily inventing, but certainly popularizing this sort of the faux style of interviewing where you. Seemingly get close to the subjects to get into their confidence, um, but what strikes me as as pretty amazing is how often you do stay in contact with them and you do seem genuinely to, to to really have relationships with these people. Does this make it make it harder to then portray them in in this way? Because you are Omar Bakri, you are portraying someone who could likely have had mm. a, a hand
3: in 9/11. Yeah, and you know I never see myself necessarily in that kind of faux naive way because you know I go in, you know I think it's kind of genuine naivety really because you go in. Yeah, being being genuinely interested and curious and wanting to know more about their world, and you know, I I I very rarely am sort of laughing under my hand. I mean, it hardly ever happens because I'm just really interested to be with them.
1: Well, I think in the way that it's become a genre, hasn't it? There are other authors yeah. doing the same thing. I have
3: unleashed a Pandora's <laughs> box of. What have
1: you started? I I, I
3: I I planted a bunch of seeds, and this vineyard of faux naivety has grown in my wake, um, and. Uh, Yeah no I think um, but yeah but sometimes they suffer I mean it doesn't happen that often and I'm always happiest when it doesn't happen like it didn't happen with Ian Paisley both you know Sinn Fein and the Free Presbyterians um, really liked my my film about Ian Paisley (laughs) Um, yeah so uh, so Paisley and his people loved it and you know the IRA loved it so that's (laughs) why I had
2: one Um, very simple question about the Paisley documentary did you warm to him at all.
3: It uh, wasn't easy to. I, I, I can tell you a story about him. I, I've talked this to it before, and they cut it out. I think it's kind of, It's like an unpleasant story, It's a well, bit too personal. But yeah, I'll tell right it. Now. Okay, Absolutely
1: fine. <laughs> all
3: right. Well, I'll tell it anyway. Um, I, my wife was pregnant when I was um, when I was with Ian Paisley in Africa, and um, you know we'd had our sort of rocky moments, me and Paisley. But my wife filled me up in a bit of a panic because they said that there was like a one in something, one in two hundred and fifty chance that that our son would, would have Down syndrome. Um, and I you know, I was in the kind of Yundi Hilton and, and you know, I'm sort of a bit neurotic at the best of times. Um, so obviously I freaked out and I thought I need to talk to somebody about this. And immediately the person I thought I should talk to was Ian Paisley. I wanted sort of religion, I wanted sort of guidance and counselling from Ian Paisley. Not like my best friend, the producer or the cameraman, mm-hmm. but Ian Paisley. Okay. So I went downstairs and I found him and I sort of approached him you know, Doctor Paisley. He said, not now! (laughs) I kind of walked off. So, you know, so (laughs) so I never got to do it. um, So I must have liked him, you know, to to an extent. Um, But, yeah, but I think sometimes you do... Sometimes they kind of do... You know, because when you're back writing it or editing it, you sort of feel as if you owe it to the story to tell your, you know, perception of the events. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it, it... you know, even if I'm sort of with them all the way at the time, when, you know, when I've got a little bit of space, I can see what they're. You know, I can see that there's some um, idiosyncrasies that are worth highlighting or whatever. Um, so you have
1: written that you, you get Christmas cards from Jonathan King, for instance, and, and yeah. it must be difficult to keep a critical distance when you're developing that sort of relationship. He will
3: Jonathan King's a funny one because he's really in denial about a lot of things. Of um, he keeps thinking that I sort of support his case. And I, and I don't Which at all quite, it
1: was quite clear from the documentary
3: yeah that I don't and he, so a few times he sort of emailed me and said you know Roy Greenslade's written something horrible about me will you email him and set the, <laughs> set the record straight <laughs>
1: what power you have I know
3: <laughs> but see it's a funny one Jonathan he'll sort of just take the bits that he wants to take from, from a relationship um, yeah but yeah no my wife gets a bit annoyed I once, I once, um, invited a member of the Manson family to tea. <laughs> 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 um. Which one? Sandra Good. Goodness she knows. was in London. She wanted a postcode. And I said it was at the time it was one N1 1JX. 1 I said N1. I said 1JX. J, X. J I said J for John. X for what you've got carved in your forehead.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and
3: she said, that's not funny.
1: <laughs> um. Does she yeah. wear a hat? Oh, <laughs> no, no, but it's <laughs> faded. I mean,
3: she's lined now, so the act
1: isn't
3: quite as uh, <laughs> just a pejorative-looking. Yeah, yeah, that. basically. <laughs> so, but you so you do kind of forget. And actually, I tell you what's interesting is that you know, I, um, when when a kind of nutty person acts like a nut, I'm completely surprised. You know, mm. when when they sort of—and it doesn't happen very often—but I had a terrible falling out with a with a cult leader, and I don't like. And it's it's probably the only time I would use the word cult because it's such a pejorative. Loaded term, and and he was just horrible towards me. And people say, well, what do you expect? He's a cult leader, yeah. and I'm, and it's just because normally they're just you know charming, you know, and, and and we get on well. And I see the human side. We connect on a human level, and it really surprises me when they kind of act to type, you know.
2: I was curious about the time you spent with um, is it Big Jim Tucker, who mm. is the man who's chasing the uh, the Bilderberg group all over the world and, and finding out more about them. Um, and of course, there's the, the the much related incident with the with the car with the black windows that was following you. Mm-hmm. But Changing did it occur to you uh, later on that perhaps your own paranoia levels had been increased just by spending time with these people?
3: Oh, absolutely! You, you completely slide into their world, and I think you'd be a worse journalist if you don't. You mm-hmm. know, if you can go in with all your scepticism and you know urban cosmopolitanism, you know, sort of like a suit of armor. Um it, you're not going to have a good story because you're just going to be some some guy with arched eyebrows in the middle of a, you know, smirking
2: ironically. Yeah. And and
3: that, you know, I hate that as much as anyone, you yeah. know. Um and um so you know, I I and I'm never like that. I completely slide into their world. It's it's you know, I I and um luckily, you know, when I'm back and I'm writing it up and I'm sort of back home I, I sort of regain a sense of of perspective, and but but can manage to sort of honestly portray the the, the, the nutty feelings I was I was feeling, and you know when I was in the middle of those adventures. But Bilderberg was slightly different when I was chased with Jim Tucker because the, the paranoia lasted for ages. You know, because i would never been chased by men in dark glasses before. I hadn't. I'd not, I couldn't say, this is a bit like the time I was chased by the shadowy henchmen of the New World Order <laughs> back in 83. You know, nothing nothing like that had ever happened to me before. So uh, that was, You know, so it took me a long time to get over that. Well,
2: the whole Bilderberg thing is... is I think, you know, I mean, you know, in a way, it's, it's the crux of the book. Is it's the... Um, you know, all these different people are all talking about this, the secret rumors of the world who are, who are controlling things in this shadowy
3: way. And yet, you manage to get to... Uh, Dennis Healy, <laughs> yeah.
2: who well, is one of the founders of the group.
3: Yeah, I um, mean, being the moment I was chased by the Build Group, group in Portugal, you know, for me is the key moment of the book because it's it's the moment when I, when any arched eyebrowness just vanishes and I, you know, I go native. I become the people that I'm writing about. Mm. And had that not happened, yeah, you know, I think it would have. Well, it sort of, you know, it, it sort of changed my perspective on sort of everything, because, you know, that sort of slid completely from my world into their world. Um, so, I'm, so I'm very glad it happened, even though it wasn't particularly pleasant at the time. Um, yeah, and then I get to Dennis Healy, who's, who's you know, the... Uh, he been pretty
2: open about it. He wasn't prepared to show you his photographs. No. So. Um,
3: <laughs> yeah, and and you begin to see the Bilderberg group from, from their perspective, which actually doesn't seem... Well, certainly, when it was formed, it doesn't seem like such a terrible idea.
1: well it seems like the World Trade Organization, but slightly more secretive, but certainly not with a, yeah. yeah with
2: a touch of Freemasonry perhaps and in, a, in a, yeah. you know in the secrecy and probably a, a bit of blokiness going on, I imagine as well which yeah. is what
1: comes out when you when you um Bohemian Grove when you infiltrate Bohemian Grove and Alex Jones is there and he's going it's so satanic it's awful you thinking it, it's, uh, it's just a bunch of guys on holiday they're doing yeah. stupid but it's yeah, yeah. it's, it's, embarrassing, it's but embarrassing
3: but but it's not but it's not, <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah, not but Alex, exactly when Alex saw the same ritual I did and went, and went off Saying, you know, that it looked like a papier mache effigy that was thrown into the fiery belly, but it might have been an actual child. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and I went away saying, oh, it's just a silly pageant. Um, actually, the thing that, you know, rem- that I remember most of all about Bohemian Grove was how all the men, the old men in the audience, you know, were all really into it. I, I felt like the only sane person in the whole Redwood <laughs> forest, you know, because Alex is going, it's, it's satanic, it's nutty, it's, you know, it's, it's evil. And all these old men are going, burn him, burn him, <laughs> you know. So all these old men were just as into it as Alex was in, in their own way. Has um, Alex changed his opinion about that at all? I mean, I know he's still got
2: his... I think you can buy the video, the footage that he shot from his website. God, he so he still thinks he it's
3: go. some... Re- he, has, he hasn't yeah. at
2: all changed his opinion
3: on it. Uh-uh. And, you know, me and Alex um, were on Coast to Coast recently. The you know, Well, it wasn't Art Bell, it was George Nuri. But, you know, a huge 10 million listeners, all of whom, you know, believe in, in, in this stuff. And... Um, uh, yeah, I remember George Nuri's question to me was, uh, "So, Bohemian Grove, is it is it satanic or is it just evil?" <laughs> um, <laughs> so what I mean, did you reply? I I, I said I, I said that I thought that it was, you know, a kind of made up ceremony because America's a new country and and you know so they sprinkled a bit of Broadway and a bit of paganism and they sort of, bit of Shakespeare. Yeah, a little bit of Satanism, and I sort of stuck it all together and came up with this ridiculous pageant, um, which is what I think it is. But of course, then all these people are saying, "Oh, well, they they let John Ronson in, you know, because you know he would, you know, they knew that he was, you know, w- w- sceptical, and he, he would
1: just yeah, and
3: the you know all the torture and the human sacrifice goes on in the <laughs> underground, you know. Buildings under our feet, beneath the owl. In a way, that's
2: one of the dangers <coughs> of the whole, of, of, of the sort of uh, paranoid conspiracy theory world, is that everything can be explained away. Then there's layer after layer after layer of it.
1: Yeah,
3: and and you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff about me working for them, working for the New World Order, or you know, either knowingly or unknowingly working for the New World Order.
1: Really? That's interesting. Yeah,
3: infiltrated resonance, I Yeah, Oh, yeah, subliminal messages.
2: <laughs> John, one of the things that's um, fascinated me recently is the way that uh, some of the sort of quite mainstream things, whether it, whether it be the Church of England or uh, or the army, for goodness sake, are starting to um, assimilate new age and, and, and fringe ideas. And, and this particularly, uh, as it applies to the army, was um, what ha- is what
3: you write about in The Men Who Stare at Goats. Mm. Yeah, which was exactly about how the Californian Human Potential Movement made its way into US military intelligence in the 70s and 80s and then sort of morphed and perverted its way into torture techniques <laughs> <or Montana laughs> Just, for, just <laughs> yeah. for my benefit, what was the Human Potential Movement? Well, it sort of began at this place called Esalen, the Esalen Institute for the Advancement of Human Potential in Big Sur. Where they all had naked hot tub encounter sessions, basically, and <laughs> primal arm wrestling. And all these people came out of that small gang, like Richard Bandler, who invented neuro-linguistic programming, um, and Est, you know, Verna, what Verna Earhart, is that his name? Mm-hmm. Um, um, but also out of this world came came uh, Lieutenant Colonel Jim Channon. Oh, Tony Robbins, you know, they, they, you know all these kind of girls, all came from this kind of small gang of Californians in the late 70s. But in the midst of this was this guy called Lieutenant Colonel Jim Shannon, who um, went to all these places and hung out with all these gurus and and became the US Army's new age guru uh, and inspired special forces soldiers to try and kill goats just by staring at them and you know, major generals to try and walk through their walls and army scientists to invent psycho-electronic weaponry that would, you know, blast your psyche. Uh, and a lot of these ideas, you know, really took root and, and live on. But they live on in the military. They live on in business. They live on in, say, in the Church of England. They, they you know, they they've sort of they, they seem to have inf- you know sort of infiltrated. their way into all our lives. You know, we, we're all like the children of the 70s human potential movement, which is fascinating to me because they're all kind of these, you know, nutty megalomaniac, um, you know, cocaine fueled, you know, loons. Yet they've had a profound and enormous influence on the fabric of mainstream society, including, you know, everything from, from Guantanamo Bay and Abu Ghraib to, uh, you know, um, um, management gurus being brought in to, you know, get cold callers to be more productive, No, <laughs> you know. Uh.
2: But specifically with the army, I mean,
3: this does seem, at first,
2: the, the most balmy thing, that somebody should... Suggest using basically new age techniques and things like psychics and uh, remote viewing and, and and things like that. You would have you would have thought the good old you know absolutely hardcore rationalist um, military would have just sort of laughed
3: this off instantly. How on earth did it take hold? Well, I think that there's a few things. There's the, the context at the time was that it was this stuff was taking hold all over the
1: place. Mm. Post-Vietnam.
3: Yeah. And the other thing, exactly, was the post-Vietnam funk where everybody was traumatised. You know, the military as a machine was traumatised and looking for something nice. Uh, And also, the US military does have this long-standing notion that they shouldn't be afraid to to think a long way. Think the impossible. Exactly. To be all that they can be. Um, (laughs) And, you know, they would argue that a lot of very good inventions have come from this way of thinking, like the high-visibility jacket. Um, You know, that's a US Army invention. What's that? You know, the fluorescent jacket. Oh, right. Cyclists wear. Um, The the taser gun, which, you know, is very controversial, but has saved a lot of lives. You know, I mean, when that was first invented you know, people thought it was like, it was like the kind of Spider-Man neck gun, you know, and it <laughs> sounded nuts. But that's become, you know, very mainstream. So they'd say, yeah, okay, we never managed to walk through our walls. Um, or You know, we kept bumping our noses. Um, but, you know, out of this endeavour came the taser gun, you know, came a whole bunch of interrogation techniques that are used at Guantanamo, which they're actually, I think, probably quite proud of, like mm. blasting people with... You know, Barney the Purple Dinosaur and stuff like that. You know, they think that's a very good idea.
2: Which, as you uh, as you as you actually say in your book, was uh, it was actually taken up by a lot of the press in both America and I think in Britain as well as a, as a kind of comedy story. The, the yeah. you know the dancing poodle at the end of the news story was uh, you know they're playing these records
3: people, but <laughs> yeah, it was torture. Oh yeah, horrendous. I mean, you know, they'd 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 um, get these people, stick them in a shipping container and desert heat. Blast them for like you know twenty four thirty six hours with Barney the Purple Dinosaur while flashing a strobe light in their face, you know they'll have their legs and arms bound, you know maybe they'd be hanging upside down, but because it was Barney, the I Love You song, you know everybody including the Guardian, you know including my own paper, said <laughs> so, oh we all had to listen to Barney at three o'clock in the morning. It's not that bad, you yeah, know I think I think we we all fell victim to a to a, you know, sort of psyop magic trick that we all started thinking because it was Barney torture isn't that bad
1: but there's a section in the book where you're um, you took it to a soldier that was a god Abu Ghraib and he's talking about it being like like the haunted hotel and the shining and and um he mentions and quite rightly I think about you could say this sort of thing is quite benign now because Obviously, when Saddam Hussein was in charge, he was supposedly dissolving people in acid. Husbands were watching their wives being raped by gangs of men and things. So I could certainly see why the, you know, the US Army would, would be of the opinion that what they're doing is you know, is, a, is a lot more friendly. I mean, I don't necessarily agree with that. But
3: yeah. Well, they would certainly say that you know, all these new age techniques that are being used, even if they drive people insane, it's still better than killing people. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that, that's their, their rationale. Um, but it is it's, it is still torture um but you 're right it 's not as bad as being dissolved in acid or crucified, <laughs> which, you know, which is what Saddam was doing in, in that same building. It was a bit creepy one of the Abu Ghraib guards saying to me that it 's as if the building wanted to be back in business it 's as if yeah, they were sort of image, yeah, forced into it said it was like you know the overlook hotel and shining um, you know the so building was telling them to do this
2: it really should be knocked down shouldn 't yeah, It' it's, not not a, definite, it's
3: not a nice be. thing um. Yeah, and I've um, lost my train of thought, and it was going to be so interesting.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm sure we'll get it back, so I'll, we'll, um, I'll try and come up with something else. To, to, uh oh yeah, so we were talking about Jim Channon, and, uh, uh, who was the first that started this, and
3: tell me about it. I mean, him. What, what's sort of fellow was he i mean he well he's very canny jim you know he's got all his kind of robes and his long hair and you know this welcome to my home you know um come this way to the banyan tree i invite <laughs> the wind but actually he's an incredibly canny man um and uh you know he wouldn't be that influential in the army to this day if he wasn't canny and that's
1: the amazing thing that they, they completely took this seriously. He does come across as just a benign hippie yeah. in the documentary, but obviously they took him seriously. Well,
3: he's he's back in business, you know, um, working for Pete Shoemaker, who's the Chief of Staff of the Army. You know, he's been kind of brought back from retirement to train people in his 1st Earth Battalion ways, um, which, is you know, a lot of it is benign, um, but, you know the field of psychoelectronic weaponry and subliminal messages and the problem with this stuff is even if it's better than killing people it still has got this sort of mengele quality to it that you know in times of crisis it's okay to treat People like guinea pigs. If, if you're, if oh, you're,
2: so, I mean, uh, Neil and I, and, and the whole rationale of the show is <coughs> pro-science, and this sort of stuff doesn't really <laughs> doesn't really do our job for us very well. If it's uh, if people are using sort of scientific research to find new ways of torturing people. Yeah.
3: Well, both a Guantanamo detainee <coughs> and an Abu Ghraib guard said the same thing to me in the minister at goats. They said that um, the, the way you should look at these places, Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo are like experimental interrogation labs where all these ideas that have sort of floated around in the dingy world of the theoretical suddenly have a chance to flourish because
1: obviously wars don't come along that often so they need to and and, and (laughs) when these
3: things do come along and you see it throughout you know the last 20 years of american history the same thing happens. It's like guinea pigs in the midst of a golden opportunity. That's what the Branch Davidians were at Waco. That's what the Weaver family were at Ruby Ridge. That's what, to to a lesser extent, what Noriega was in, in the Vatican Embassy in Panama um, City. But certainly, what you know, the Guantanamo detainees and the Abaregro detainees are—they're they're guinea pigs in the midst of a golden opportunity to try stuff out. And I'm not necessarily being kind of critical of it you know I, I but I think it's it's certainly um, it's certainly the way you should look at those places which is why I think people like Seymour Hirsch were were to an extent um, I think they were asking the wrong questions you know after the Abergrave torture photographs came out you know who gave the orders how high up does this go I think that sort of betrays a misunderstanding of how ideas form within the military. You should think of it as like a whole bunch of think tanks Mm. all coming together like in a big casserole um, each trying to get their elbow room to kind of try stuff out. It's these kind of middle-ranking colonels saying, oh, do you remember that guy, Jim Chan? he used to say we should blast them with music. Let's try that. Oh, do you remember that guy? He said we should stick them all in a big pyramid. Let's try that out. You know, that, I think that's the way. You know, you saw it happen at Waco. They flew in these this Russian scientist called Igor Smirnov. You know, the idea being to to, to blast the bunch of idiots with, with silent sounds, subliminal sounds. Um you know, and then there was the Nancy Sinatra lot. Then there was this lot and that lot, and it was all—you know—it's like they all had, you know, all trying to get their ideas to the fore, like a casserole of intelligence in an experimental lab.
1: Oh, sure, Donald—pardon me, Donald Rumsfeld. Will be, will um, be pleased that yeah, letting him off the hook there. Although well,
3: no, he's—I mean, he's certainly part of it. Yeah, I mean, but he said, um, you know, the reason why Jim Chan is back in the fold was because he said we need to have creative input into the war on terror which reminds me you know kind of and i I don't mean this to sound blithe but it it does remind me a bit of of the you know of the way hitler would operate which was basically you know we need to come up with a way to do this and then it all you know all this kind of minions would scuttle around trying to come up with ideas Mm. and that's you know what rumsfeld would say you know we need to think of more creative ideas and then it all scuttle around thinking you know trying to please him with creative ideas um you know like musical torture Good example. I could, I'd
2: like to talk about that if I can. Because um, there's the bit in the uh, there's a bit near towards the end of the Stare it goes, and the whole book actually has an interesting trajectory because it starts off quite light hearted. Oh, look at these sort of weird hippies in the army, and it gets progressively darker really as you head towards <coughs> the, um, Guantanamo Bay and Abu Ghraib, and there's this extraordinary story that you hear from. Um, the British released prisoner I forget his name now uh, Jamal Al-Harith yeah mm-hmm. and he tells this bizarre story um, about somebody bringing in a ghetto blaster and playing him something like
3: Chris Christopherson <laughs> and Fleetwood Mac <laughs> at normal volume yeah um, and then and just w-
2: leaving it on there, leaving it in in his cell
3: yeah well they, they took him to an interrogation cell and they would stick on Chris Christopherson the whole CD
2: so it wasn't even a repetitive Barney the dinosaur over and over. And,
3: and it wasn't being blasted either. Um, and it wasn't sort of, you
1: know,
3: you know, it wasn't sort of screechy sounds. And but and then when that was over, they they sort of put it on again to the beginning and then left the room again. And this would go on for, you know, hours and hours and hours um and
2: it wasn't them just trying to uh, change his taste in music and no i mean the good I old he's, American he's, yeah
3: you well, you can't say that it was him, them trying to freak him out you know with western culture because you know jamal's from <laughs> manchester um and uh you can't say that they were trying to sort of blast him on a psychic level because it was normal volume um so i th- and and he swears they weren't doing it like to entertain him he says, "Really, the atmosphere wasn't that." But you, well, I came to a theory anyway, which was, you know, what they, what we know they tried at Waco, um, because it's been declassified, which is subliminal sounds, which is, you know, underneath Chris Christopherson is, you know,
2: confess or some backwards voice or something, backwards something masking like or something, yeah. Which
3: sounds, you know, sort of freaky, but when you think about it, it's just a Psyop soldier in a, in a radio studio much like this one in Fort Bragg. And I went into the radio studios at Fort Bragg and they do look much like this one. <laughs> um, just whispering into a microphone, you know, tell us what you
0: know. <laughs>
3: and, and then you, you, and then you know lace you it into Chris Christopherson <laughs> and then, you know... See if it works.
1: You've not noticed the subliminal sounds emanating from this studio yet. Well, like
3: I hope the like both <laughs> coming from outside. Right, the, the rationalist in me thinks it's just an air vent. <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: There's um
3: on the same on the same
1: track as what Richard just, just described. There's there's a couple of incidents in in either book in both books that um really stood out for me. You know, I'm, re- I'm reading the book them and it and it you know it is a a poor you know, a nice portrait of, of you know, wacky conspiracy theorists and then there's the chapter about Ruby Ridge and in The Menisteric Goats the trajectory takes us towards the end where you tell the MK Ultra story mm. and both of these seem to me you know, you describe it as this idea that this is the point where the nutty conspiracy theorists and the nutty government yeah. do actually intersect and, and this thing does happen Yeah, th-
3: these are both places where the conspiracy theories come true um, certainly, and where your sympathy lies, you know, entirely with, well, certainly in the case of Ruby Ridge, your sympathies lie entirely with the, with the Nazis, basically, <laughs> you, know, um, which is, you know, which is, you know, yeah, place which is very odd. In. I know, very yeah. odd, but, but true. Um, so uh, you know, and in, a, in many ways, it was just the worst. I mean, for that reason, it's the worst thing that the government could have done because you know they would turned the weavers into into heroes. And and there's a right into
1: their hands, okay.
3: Yeah, and you know, the Oklahoma City bombing was. Um, I mean, it was. Th- you know, McVeigh said there were three things that inspired him to do that: the first Gulf War, Waco, and Ruby Ridge. I mean, you know, McVeigh took the same journey I took, which was you know up to the cabin i should probably explain for listeners yeah, please who please don't say. know it's just it's, it was a family of um they weren't white supremacists they were white separatists which in that world you know is very you know they say it's a very different thing um you know they they thought the new world order was going to get them so they've moved up to a cabin at the top of the mountain in idaho uh, quite near the golf course you know, there's nowhere in america is that far away from civilization um And they got all paranoid in there you know they're gonna get us um they're watching us from the bushes and they were watching them from the bushes you know they you know the atf and the u.s marshals um sent an undercover agent to get randy weaver to to become a you know an informant for them uh and spy on the nearby nazis and he said no so they entrapped him into sawing off a shotgun Slightly below the legal limit, and they say, "Ah, now you have to become an informant for us, mm-hmm. you know because otherwise we 're going to get you on a gun church and Randy said, "No way, and he sort of shut himself in the cabin and what you had then it was like you know like I said earlier about you know David Ike, he had this, a sort of spiral of nuttiness on both sides inside the cabin. The weavers became convinced that they were watching them from the bushes, and the people in the bushes watching them were became convinced that the weaver family, this you know basically sweet, nutty little family with these little mm-hmm. baby kids running around were like, you know, the U.S.S.R. Yeah, yeah, with landmines, and it was a compound suddenly. It wasn't a cabin anymore, it was a compound, and they were like the greatest, you know, enemy America faced. And, you know, when you've got that much paranoia on both sides, it's going to explode, and it exploded with the FBI and the ATF, you know, killing the little boy Sammy Weaver, and then killing Vicky Weaver, you know, who was unarmed. She was just holding a baby, and they killed her. They killed the dog, and and um, um, th- and it gave birth to the militia movement and to Timothy McVeigh. Yeah, I mean, it was
2: grotesque,
3: and it had
2: in every way it was the wrong way of dealing with anything.
3: <laughs> Absolutely. Really. Plus, I mean, it was so interesting. I mean, I hung around quite a long time with with Rachel Weaver, one, you know, one of the daughters, and you know, you just couldn't meet a lovelier, more intelligent, you know, nice person. Nice, and, yeah, and, and um, <laughs> well, that, that was the downside. I had a bit of a crush on her, actually. And, uh, I, I thought, so, if, you know, if, if I wasn't married and if Rachel didn't believe that, you know, the Jews were the mud people, <laughs> maybe. Just so. a couple
2: of barriers yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I'd like to talk a bit more about the, you know, this sort of conspiracy theory, because it is something that worries me enormously. In the you know, I'm... It, we've talked a little bit about it, it, it isn't just, you know, you neo-Nazis who believe this, it's a lot of, uh, it's now starting to be people on the left and people like yeah. um, Ike are, are happy to deal with their left. website, you know, if you look yeah. at, at at Ike's website for example, you don't really get the nutty stuff at first, you just get this sort of the standard the good of youth Moulter. culture, anti-bush, anti-war, yeah. anti-pollution good stuff, you know, yeah. nice and inviting. And it's only, you know, you actually have to go into it quite a way before you find stuff about the lizards out.
3: Yeah, yeah. And, um, and it's, I think it's a little bit dangerous, I've got to say. I mean, I th- as a Jew, I find it a bit dangerous because I think that, um, you know, there is anti-Semitism laced into a lot of these conspiracy theories. You know, it annoys me a bit when, you know, a sort of anti-Israel feeling gets so mashed up with anti-Semitism. Um, which which seems to happen a lot. I mean, a lot of Jews I know, you know, have sort of stopped reading the Guardian because they think it's crossed the line from anti-Zionist to anti-Semitic. Um, I mean, I, I don't know if that, I mean I'm, you know, I work for them. And I'm Jewish, and, and so do lots of other Jews well, work for them because really we control them media. In um, <laughs> <But>, yeah. <laughs> um,
2: yeah. The comments. Yeah, uh, the comments editor has uh, certainly taken the commentary in the uh, in yeah. the Guardian into interesting areas
1: recently.
3: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> and and. Um, so you know th- there is, you know this this stuff is getting laced into you know th- the left thinking. I'm
2: wondering what we can do to counter. If, if, I mean I'm, I don't know why I'm asking you specifically, John, because oh, you, you've you've, I inv- you've investigated it to an extent and you've seen the sort
3: of wide variety that there is of conspiracy theories. The kind of problem it, with the left at the moment It's polemicism. There's too much polemicism on the left. This is the problem, because polemicists, you know, by the very nature of polemicism lie. Uh, You know, polemics (laughs) is all about lying. It's all about cutting out the stuff that doesn't fit your agenda. You know, Michael Moore does it. Um, You know, every leading left-wing commentator I can think of does it, including some, you know, good personal friends of mine. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I I find it to be, you know, a, a slightly sort of dangerous way of doing things, because turns everything black and white mm. and you know we liberals are always quite good at you know not so being black and white more,
2: and it's also yeah it's 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 trying to make things simple that aren't simple yeah. the fact is that you know the, the world is quite complicated i think and sometimes <laughs> sometimes to try and just as you're saying it's all there are bad people over there and there are good people over here yeah. That's basically heading towards the conspiracy theories. Yeah, it? I mean, I happen to
3: think that the Bushes are are basically all bad, and it's yeah. very hard to find anything good with the Bushes. But, you know, I don't believe the stuff in Fahrenheit 9-11. I don't believe, you know, the Bush-Saudi connection. I don't believe that Bush... You know, knew 9-11 was going to happen which is basically what Michael Moore was trying to make us think in that
1: There's a fascinating scene where we're introduced to the Iraq war and he presents this scene of children in a park with flying kites and stuff and it's Yeah, proud of that lovely Iraq I the know, experience. it's, it's so shocking It's it
3: absolutely shocking you know, the, the, you know, before the Americans invaded Iraq, all the Iraqis ever did was slide down slides <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah I know, but it, it's, it's crazy and and um i i i wish you know there were more people on the left who who um you know dealt in shades of gray yeah because we, we tend not to and it's partly a response of being the, the oppressed minority you know being the outsider now yeah. you know now that you know they, they're kind of right-wing that's are in power
1: but certainly so in politics so many things seem to be all the behavior of america always seems to be down to well, they're obviously doing it because of Israel. They're doing it to protect Israel. It doesn't matter what it is or where in the world it is. Israel is always involved some way. Yeah. And Israel's so got a lot to
3: answer for. I mean, you know. But, again, it's not like... I mean, it, oh, I mean, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Cause it's
1: still becoming obvious. It's, a, it's a, just another conspiracy theory, isn't it? It's, right. it's an easy, easy sort of trope to bring out.
3: Yeah. I mean, I certainly wish that, that, you know, Israel was it's sweeter, <laughs> but you know. <laughs> well, um, oh no, it yeah. certainly it certainly would, but you know. I mean, I don't believe. Well, we know for certain that you know Bin Laden's philosophy has really got nothing to do with Israel. You know, it's, it's to do with the American presence in Saudi Arabia. Um, so,
1: but on a wide, you know, it has got something to do with Israel on a wider scale, which okay. is that. wants it wiped off the face of the earth and Mm. and that's something that obviously you can't bargain with you know you're not gonna
3: get and it's also something that's not gonna happen you know (laughs) um and so you know so it's partly the palestinians fault too i mean i I do think that um um oh god my history has eluded me in the heat of the moment um
1: (laughs) But we're going well, down, um,
3: well, you know, Arafat's, our, our, well, our you know, sort of uh, um, refusal to sign the, the, the Clinton-Bagan Peace Accord, which actually would have created a perfectly good Palestinian state, because, you know, he wanted to put in that clause that meant that, that Israel would be wiped off the face of the earth. You know, I mean, there, there have been times when, when you know, we, we nearly had a proper peace mm-hmm. in that region. Um, and it wasn't just the Israelis' fault, but we are getting sidetracked.
1: If we can go back to um, I I have to raise the um, the general stubblebine trying to walk through the walls, Because yeah. I, I think it's such a lovely image. Because it does seem. I mean, it you know, it seems so reasonable actually. You know, say yeah, this idea that you know an atom is, they the the compare an atom to, you know. Winchester Cathedral with a fly in it or something. Yeah, talking to Simon good. Singh last week and he was talking <laughs> about this sort of thing. Right, yeah. and it okay. seems unreasonable, okay. but uh,
3: yeah, no, he said that the atom is made up mostly of space, and the wall and the human body are made up mostly of atoms. So it is possible to merge the spaces, and you can walk through your wall. But of course, you know the key word in this is mostly. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs>
3: um, the atom is only made up mostly of space. You know, there is, a, there is some <laughs> solid matter in there. You do think, well, um, it does seem
1: like a reasonable proposition, but then, why am I not falling through this chair? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like all, you know, you being just being pulled th- towards the centre of the earth.
3: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's in a way, it's lucky that it didn't work, because exactly, he would have fallen through to the basement, wouldn't they? <laughs> if he would managed to master the technique, you would have got all the way to Australia. Um well, yeah. if you
2: got sidetracked halfway through, would you
3: sort of be stuck through a wall? Of the, the,
2: the, <laughs> the same thing I always used to worry about in Star Trek when they did the beaming down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they never hit, hit walls or they <laughs> never landed <laughs> five foot above the ground.
3: Yeah. yeah. And I'm sure there's more than I found out, by the way, about the wall walking. General Suburbide, I'm sure, was not the only leading American military man to attempt to walk through his wall. I'm certain that there were teams of special forces soldiers at Fort Bragg who were all All
1: jogging, yeah, all
3: jogging towards their walls and then bumping their noses. Well, we've got about
2: two minutes, so I think.
3: I has been good, I've, I've, though, except yeah. for my slightly offensive diversion, saying that Israel was, you know, utterly innocent and the entire <laughs> Palestinian. That'll go down well. Yeah, mm, we're glad <laughs> we have given you a voice. If, if I could like live that. over the last, you know, <laughs> if I could relive the last two minutes, I probably wouldn't have gone down that road. But <laughs> 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 we're quite glad
2: you did. It'll be on the website uh, tomorrow. Um, I, had, I had a, a totally uh, unconnected with any of our usual topics. So I just wondered what... Because I know you, you, were, you mentioned that you were looking forward to it. What did you think of the, uh, of the Dylan documentary on TV? Oh, I thought
3: it was fantastic, wasn't it? I, 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 you know, it was amazing to see. You. Although I, 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 I sort of side slightly with the guy who shouted Judith. What was my
2: friend who shouted Judith? Judith.
3: My son said to me, my seven-year-old said, you know, after I don't believe you, you're a liar. He said, that's not funny. <laughs> so it could have been, he could have had a better. But no, I thought it was brilliant. And I
2: was just astonished that this footage existed of, that, of the Manchester United. After King. all How? those years,
3: yeah, I know. Was was absolutely astonishing. Absolutely. <laughs> cr- I mean, that foot- but the footage from Newcastle, which they used earlier on, you know, that beautiful red um, curtain, you know, that they used at the beginning of the it's film with Blackwood, it's absolutely brilliant, wasn't it? Um, yeah but the reason why I side slightly with the Judas people is that you can tell from the footage that that you know because this this music came before the um the, the sort of advent of decent speakers and decent mixing desks it you know probably sounded terrible so if you were sitting in the hall extremely
2: whole loud by, yeah. by even by today's standards yeah they brought their own p a over Anyway, I'm sidetracking into one of my, uh, my yeah, favourite areas talk about that But it was <laughs>
3: beautifully made. I mean, what a brilliant documentary. Yeah, wasn't it was nice, nice. Although seat. he does seem to think that, that Dylan, you know, basically died in that motorcycle accident, doesn't he? He does. Yeah. I he mean, the rest of his career, you know, Desire and Blonde on Blonde are all sort of relegated to a short Aston at the end of the documentary. But that's a small criticism for what was basically a completely brilliant documentary, I thought.
1: Well, perhaps we'll have to bring you back to talk about the documentary again. Yeah, my Dylanology. John
2: Ross, thank you, thanks very much for coming in. Um, You can visit our website, which is www.littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening.